welcome to another edition of the Fit Professional One podcast. We're always grateful to have you join us. Today, I have Avery Ferrari, and we're going to talk about movement. Avery is an expert in kinesiology, but also brings with her excellent experience all kinds of UCI, world-class athleticism, and application of the concepts we're going to talk about today. So I'm really thrilled to have Avery with us. With that, we're going to have Avery tell her about ourselves, and then we're going to get into the subject at hand with a bunch of really good questions. So with that, Avery, tell us your story. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, Paul. Yeah, so I'm a Air Force veteran, former professional cyclist, just finished up a few years in, in academia. I knocked out my bachelor's in kinesiology with a concentration in exercise science, and then I just finished my master's in exercise physiology, I guess three months ago now, time flies. But I, I'm a cycling coach as well with Otterhouse Coaching, and then I'm also on the, the board of directors for the Amy Dombrowski Foundation, which is a foundation that we seek to kind of open opportunities and, and provide experiences, resources to up and coming women and women cyclists and BIPOC populations as well. So yeah, it, life is busy. I've got three dogs. I, I still enjoy riding my bike as much as I can, but yeah, that's a little bit of my life story. Avery, congratulations. It's not easy to do a master's degree and then figure out where to go. But also, I want to thank you for your service. I really appreciate that. Veterans have a special place in my heart. Thank you for that hard work. Oh, yeah. Proud to do it. It was a fulfilling seven years. And I'm so, so proud of, of that time in my life. And it was the right thing for me at that point. And yeah, I carry a lot of those experiences with me through any experience now. So it was an honor to serve. Now, you competed representing the United States of America, and you had an expertise or profession in the Air Force. What was your non-cycling expertise in the Air Force? So I was part of a career field called Security Forces, and essentially Security Forces broadly is one of the most diverse career fields in the Air Force. You can be a dog handler, you can work with you know the missile fields, you can provide base security, law enforcement, there's an investigation branch. But my first three years in the Air Force. I was stationed in Washington, D.C. I was a member of the 811th Security Forces Squadron. So our job was to essentially provide inner outer perimeter security for POTUS, President of the United States, so all the way down to, to three-star generals. Yeah, foreign heads of state, families of VPs. So it was, that was also exciting. I had to pinch myself even on the job. I'd, I have to pinch myself now like, oh yeah, that happened, you know? So getting to see folks, the secretary of state or secretary of defense getting on and off planes a few times a week and being there just witnessing how busy their schedules are. And, you know, the people who are running this country, hats off to them. I'm, I'm glad they're doing it. So. Yeah, well, thanks again. And that's fascinating. Let's get to the, one of the subjects today, kinesiology, big word. What is kinesiology? Oh, yeah. It's, it's another very broad topic, similar to, you know, something like security forces, the umbrella of, of things that fall under kinesiology, are, it's pretty vast. So it, it's essentially the study of movement within the body. And, and there are branches of that that can go down into physical therapy, occupational therapy, athletic training, exercise physiology, which is, is kind of my niche within that umbrella. And then health and wellness generally, or coaching, physical education is another kind of stream from kinesiology. What attracted you to that degree? Because it's not easy. Science. Yeah, I think I'm a very curious person. I love learning. I think I spent so many years pushing my body on the bike. And I knew in that short period of time that I was racing that I met some unique people who also shared a passion of pushing their limits and, and you know, connecting with this machine that we're riding through the woods and over rocks and through creeks and up and down mountains. And it always fascinated me, the processes that enabled our bodies to do that and to get stronger and that it's not as easy as just going and riding. Certainly 90% of the population could see adaptations from just going and exercising more. But then as you get further and further into that 90th, 99th percentile, you need to be a little more meticulous with your training. So I think the art and the science 
albeit subjective for many, many people, because not any body is going to respond the same. So figuring out different training principles and learning about those processes that allow you and I to see each other through a, a laptop while, you know, also being able to go and ride a bike later. I think that always fascinated me. So that's kind of what drew me in. I learned some already. It's quite interesting just on the percentages you threw out there. We have to change the way we approach our practice based on where we are in that continuum. So it's quite interesting. I always like to try to pull out one of the objectives today for the listener, because we have predominantly a professional audience that tries to fit in fitness, trying to be good at their career and other aspects of their life. It's going to be different when you're just starting out as opposed when you're 10 years down the road and quite a ways improved. But the other message I heard you say is even the top, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a question, even the 1% top can get positive adaptions if things are structured right. Absolutely. Yeah, you can, you're going to adapt every single day that you're alive, that our bodies are moving inside and out. And depending on what we subject our bodies to, what types of stimulus we subject our bodies to, those are going to help determine, you know, predictably how our bodies are going to respond to that. So yeah, you get someone who's a brand new professional, whether it be in, in the occupational setting or someone who's a brand new cyclist, the learning curve for any of those experiences are going to be so steep that, you know, within the first year, you're going to progress, you're going to learn, you're going to adapt so, so quickly. And then it's going to be in those enduring years where you start to see those adaptations become a little more specific and a little more targeted in order to actually elicit the outcome that you're looking for. So people, you know, even, even someone like Nino Scherter, you know, without a doubt, the most decorated and accomplished cross-country mountain biker ever. He's won, I think, 35 World Cups now. He's been world champion maybe nine times now, maybe 10. I don't know. It's hard to keep track with the guy anymore. He's been in rainbow stripes pretty much ever since I started racing. You know, when I was 14 years old, he was already winning medals in the Olympics and stuff. And I think he's in, you know, in the later, later years of his career now, whereas he's had a recipe for success and things work well for him, but he's going to be fine tuning any of those types of training stimulus, how much he's lifting in certain parts of the month or how much he's doing long steps sub-threshold work in other parts of the month, things like that can be adaptable. Excellent. So with this degree, tell us about your favorite part of it. Or what is your passion? What passion did you find within or joy within kinesiology? So I went to James Madison University, which is nestled right in Harrisonburg, Virginia. We're right in the Shenandoah Valley, maybe two and a half hours southwest of D.C. And I think the coolest part of my academic experience was to get to work with like-minded nerds who love understanding how to optimize the function of our bodies and to learn how our bodies respond to different types of experiences. And I think the faculty at, at JMU really, really, you know, stoked that fire of curiosity for me and, and getting to work with them side by side through my thesis project or volunteering for other research projects, you know, ultimately, you know, finishing my graduate program with having undergrad research assistants working for us with, for our nitrate project. And then also an amazing peer and colleague, the other grad students that were working side by side on their own project in the lab. I think the lab experience was phenomenal, getting to hook people up to machines and have them run or bike or lift or consume a supplement and being able to take measurements on the back end of that, how their bodies are responding. Yeah, that was a nerd's dream come true. That's awesome. And I think a good pivot right into telling us about your studies, your thesis study. Why don't we start with that one? I think it's just fascinating. Sure. Yeah. I think if I could lay the groundwork uh, for the study, I was coached, you know, when I was racing back in my former life, I was coached by Jeremiah Bishop and he's another well-known North American cyclist. I was coached by him for almost four years, many seasons training with that guy. And he was always like, oh, you got to drink the beetroot juice. You got to drink beetroot juice. And 
And I never, I drank it. I thought it tasted like dirt, but I was like, oh, this guy says it helps, you know, what the heck? It's a bottle of juice off the shelf. Worst case scenario, I'm getting some sugar. So I always, I trained with it. I raced with it and I was always fascinated by it. And then, you know, fast forward to grad school or even undergrad, I hadn't even graduated yet, but I was in communication with my thesis advisor. He's a fantastic mentor, Dr. Mike Saunders here in Harrisonburg. He's the human performance lab director and and he kind of took me under my wing for this project where, you know, him and I both shared an interest in the ergogenic effects or the, you know, performance improving effects, potential performance improving effects of something like dietary nitrates, which come from or are heavily concentrated in, in beets, but are also found in a lot of other vegetables. So even before grad school started, Mike and I were, were already kind of scheming on this project and we were able to, to tie in uh, a lot of my experience. So essentially the, the title of the project was the effects of dietary nitrate supplementation or beetroot juice on cycling performance in a hypoxic environment versus normoxic. So sea level versus a simulated higher altitude, 2,500 meters or so, veil, veil elevation, 8,500 roughly. And then we were looking at those environmental conditions and then comparing how recreationally trained cyclists responded to that supplementation versus how elite trained cyclists responded to that supplementation. So. We had a mixture of highly trained cyclists, you know, with a VO2 max of over 60. I think we had two of our subjects that were over 70 and we ended up with a pretty, pretty phenomenal average VO2 max. And then even our recreationally trained, you know, the, the ceiling for the recreationally trained was a VO2 max of 55. So we had a, a good range of, you know, between 35 and, and 54 even for our recreationally trained cohort. So we had them perform a, a four kilometer time trial, which is long enough for us to facilitate or to elicit those physiological responses that we are looking for. Excuse me for the interruption, but again, for the listener who are not cyclists, will you describe totally. what a time trail is? Because it sounds like not a big deal, but it's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, totally. Thank you for, for catching me. I think it's easy for me to get caught in the weeds with some of this stuff. So a time trial essentially is we put you on a bike, we fit you to a stationary bike in our lab. We've got equipment in and out of your mouth. We're taking blood from you. We're taking, you know, subjective measures like rate of perceived exertion. And we're having you ride your bike as hard as you possibly can go for four kilometers. So as, as long as that takes you, I think the fastest time we had was about five minutes and 45 seconds. And then, you know, that range, you know, up, upwards of 12 minutes typically for what it would take to complete a four kilometer time trial. So two and a half miles, give or take, just full gas, as hard as you can possibly go. That's essentially what a time trial is going to be. Really hard. Trying to yeah, 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 absolutely. You're trying to complete a, a set distance in as little time as possible. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I guess I should probably dumb down nitrates, not dumb down, I should explain nitrates in a layman term. If we could, yeah, if we could cut out the, the dumbing down. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> if I can explain nitrates in, in layman's terms, essentially it's a, you know, it's a, a precursor of something called nitric oxide, which is a, a gaseous diatomic molecule, which means that there are two, you know, molecules attached to each other, nitrogen and oxygen. And nitric oxide plays a lot of roles in our body. It can help endothelial vasodilation, so it can take our blood vessels and cause them to relax or to increase their diameter and in doing so you're going to potentially lower your blood pressure if there's less resistance on the interior lining of the endothelial cells you're going to have a, a reduction in blood pressure blood is going to be able to move more freely it helps with glucose uptake so sugars into your muscles nitric oxide can augment that process and then you know on the most complicated side of things nitric oxide can play a role in improving mitochondria mitochondrial function by essentially blocking off the loss of hydrogen ion uncoupling, which is a measurement of efficiency essentially for an individual mitochondria. If you're losing these ions, that's less energy that can go directed into regenerating energy cells within our body. So nitric oxide has a lot of different roles. And as it turns out, beetroot juice 
has a lot of my need to, need to insert Avery one more thing. Can you expand a little bit on what mitochondria are and why they're important in our muscle function? Yeah, so they're the powerhouse of the cell. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, mitochondria, yeah, they're, you know, these cells within our bodies that are responsible for producing adenosine triphosphate. So essentially where our bodies are able to take glucose and turn that into pyruvate. And then through that process, our body is able to essentially make these molecules, these energy molecules that are called ATP or adenosine triphosphate, where essentially every time a muscle contracts, you know, even even just hands and neck and my mouth and my eyes, essentially a phosphate is being snapped off of that three phosphate molecule and that's causing essentially myosin heads, which are these you know microscopic components of skeletal muscle to move and interact with other tissues, other microscopic molecules within our muscle tissue. So the mitochondria is literally the powerhouse of the cell. So in other words, this is how my food bottle helps me go. <laughs> this is how my glucose in my food bottle gives me more energy, right? That's what we just yeah, heard. Yeah, for sure. That's maybe way too simplistic, but well, I mean, just yeah, trying no, to keep up. <laughs> for sure. No, yeah. it, it absolutely is. And the speed in which that energy becomes available is going to vary depending on your state of activity, you know, how quickly your body can digest food and then translate that into usable things for the mitochondria. Okay. You know, the speed in which those things get to your muscles are, are going to vary. Okay. Excellent. So, I, so you didn't lose your train of thought, did you? Because with my No, no, no. <laughs> Keep rolling. No, so, this is great. So nitric oxide can be formed in, in a couple different ways within our body. There's an oxygen independent pathway and there's an oxygen dependent pathway. And so one pathway requires oxygen and one pathway doesn't require oxygen. And, and it turns out that when we consume nitrate rich foods, beets or celery or spinach, you know, a lot of them, those nitrates will seep through the brush guard or the luminal border of the, the GI tract and enter the bloodstream and then from the bloodstream of the GI it's going to make its way up to actually our salivary glands in our mouth where we have bacteria that have properties that allow nitrates to be broken down into nitrites and nitrites to then be broken down into nitric oxide which is that usable form of those molecules that are able to elicit those vasodilatory effects onto our vasculature. Excellent. So tell us about the study. That was a great job. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't use all these scientific terms. <laughs> I have a feel yeah, for yeah. how my muscles get energy. Yeah, I encourage listeners to rewind it 10 seconds every now and then <laughs> if they miss something. But so there's some evidence that shows that consuming high concentrations of these nitrates can improve exercise performance. And some of those outcomes include a reduction in blood pressure, improve time trial performance or increased power output, reduced lactic acid, reduced oxygen consumption at steady state. So you're riding at a 60 to 70% of your view. Max. There's been some evidence that shows that nitrates can have an effect on blood pressure and oxygen consumption at those levels. So our study, essentially, we are looking, there's a lot of evidence that shows that individuals with a VO2 max higher than 60 milliliters per kilogram per minute, it's a relative VO2 max, they are not likely, typically, to see any benefit. There are a couple that show some benefits, but more show no benefits in, in these populations than those that do. You know, those are some of the proposed benefits. So we are looking to see if essentially putting elite trained athletes in a simulated altitude, if putting them in a hypoxic environment where you're going to see things like increased RPE or rate of perceived exertion, you're going to see increased steady state respiratory exchange ratios, you're going to see lower power output as a result of less oxygen being diffused into the body. So your body's having, you're still asking your body to do the same amount of work, but with way less resources to do so. So that's kind of what happens at altitude. And we are looking to see if there would be any difference in response or the magnitude of response between the recreationally trained and the highly trained, given those two environmental conditions. So we're sitting on the edge of our chairs. What happened? 
we didn't see anything. Okay. And, you know, a 2019 lit review actually reported that 70% of studies show no benefits for dietary nitrate supplementation. But of those studies that do show some benefits, typically it's shown to be recreationally trained or active men, males, or clinical populations are more likely to see some of those benefits than an elite trained endurance athlete. And there's some theories as to why elite trained athletes don't see any benefit. It turns out nitrates or nitric oxide are, are going to be preferentially augmented in areas that contain high ratios of fast twitch muscle fibers. And as it turns out, surprise, surprise, elite trained endurance athletes aren't going to have a lot of fast twitch muscle fibers. The muscle fiber type distribution that allows them to be successful in an endurance event likely is benefited from having higher ratios of slow twitch muscle fiber types, which have increased mitochondrial density. They're able to generate energy aerobically far more efficiently than, than that of a fast twitch, which is far more glycolytic. They're going to be able to create a lot of energy very quickly, but they're also more fatigable. So that's one reason. Another reason is that elite trained endurance athletes might already be a little more health conscious. You know, they're a little more intentional about the, the fuel that they're putting in their body that is then going to turn into those energy molecules that allow muscle fiber contractions to, to occur. So they might have elevated nitrate levels versus, you know, recreational populations. And there might not be an additive effect, you know, an, an elite trained athlete can eat a ton of nitrates every single day naturally in their diet. And if we give them more nitrates, it might not be the case that giving them more is going to see an additional benefit. And then another reason is as to why elite trained athletes may not see it is that they might not actually be able to get to the relative tissue hypoxia that would be needed to augment additional nitric oxide to those areas where the muscle is burning. You know, you're going full gas through vascular vascularization and an arterial remodeling is an adaptation from chronic aerobic exercise. Nutrients are being delivered as, as quickly as they can in those areas and might not see a lot of additional benefit from that. So would this statement be reasonable, I guess, hypothetically, and that would be based on what you just said, it sounds like somebody who's a sprinter because of the fast twitch muscle recruitment might benefit more than someone who's an endurance athlete with this. Potentially, yeah. There have been some studies that have shown, you know, shorter bouts of higher intensity exercise. There may be some benefit, but there are also other ones that show sprint performance to be unchanged from trait supplementation. So it's highly variable and we haven't exactly figured out, you know, we're getting pretty close as to understanding who might see a response more than others, but the nitty gritty is still kind of yet to be fully understood. Right. And the perceived exertion is something that's important to being an asthmatic. And lately I've been diagnosed as an asthmatic, not lately, but really my whole life. I'm tested for lung capacity and my lung capacity, I'm 62 now, but I have 85% of an 85 year old's lung capacity. So this is one reason actually endurance sports, it sounds like they wouldn't work for me, but they do for what you said is because the the sprint opportunities, it's punchy and your body has time to recover and get ready. That's why I like cross-country mountain biking. Longer events as relative to the really short, punchy events out there. For me, I think I noticed something in there. I wonder if it's more perceived exertion is adjusted. Again, this is a hypothetical comment based on my own experience relative to what's really going on in my body. Just this past week, a company I train with and you're affiliated with Training Peaks published an article. I'm sure it's at the footnote of the article. I didn't look at the source, but they said a 0.8 improvement for kind of their recreational class athlete. And that would be consistent with what you said. It basically comes up from zero to a little bit of help. And the way I look at athletics, every bit of help I can get, as long as I'm not talking about, you know, doping or anything, but with natural supplements, 
which is the same to me as taking care of your body, right? Putting the best stuff in it that you possibly can so that you can perform over time. Do, do you have anything about the dosing timing or amount? Because another article I read talked about that a little bit, but I'm wondering if, how did you do that in your study? And briefly, if you could tell us that. Yeah, so there's absolutely a dose timing response to nitrates. Most studies that show an absolute dosage of four millimoles per liter, which is, you know, it's not going to mean anything to, to some of your listeners. Four millimoles per liter is the lowest amount of nitrates that have shown some effects, but many, many, many studies that use a dosage of four or less show nothing. Some studies on the upper end are dosing participants with up to 20 millimoles per liter. And then typically, you know, the literature is showing that plasma nitrites and nitrates are going to peak sometime between an hour and two and a half hours post-consumption. So we, for our study, we were, we measured that by performing an intravenous blood draw before we gave them beetroot juice, which is a highly concentrated form of nitrates. We were giving our test subjects, we were loading them for several days. They had two full days. And then they, on the third day, they came into the lab. They were getting roughly 15 millimoles per liter on day one, 15 millimoles per liter on day two and then 15 millimoles per liter on day three, but we are giving them the dose at the same time. Whereas on the two days prior, we're having them split the dose between Monday morning and, and afternoon. So we would perform a, a pre-measurement blood draw and then a post-measurement blood draw. We would spin the blood down and pipette the plasma off, dip the plasma in liquid nitrogen and put it in a negative 80 degree freezer where we're, we're still pending some results on those, but the literature typically shows that two and a half hours is when the peak levels of nitrates are shown to be circulating within your bloodstream. I think this is fascinating. So our listeners, we keep them listening because we have a lot more to get to. How, what can we share with them? I, I mean, my philosophy is why not? Especially for most of us are not elite trained athletes. Why not get that half to 1% bump and take care of yourself? And it sounds like it might just help me generally. I mean, like you said, every single movement goes through essentially the same process. It's just when you're working out, it's much, much more, much accelerated. So, you know, why not? Is that, what do you have to say to the kind of just starting out athlete or that person we're trying to get moving today? Yeah. So I think for someone that's just starting, I think if they have other macronutrient needs addressed, like things like carbohydrate timing, protein, fats, meal timing, what are they eating on and off the bike? If they have that nutrition dialed, if they, you know, have, have spoken with their doctor and they are cleared, you know, the doctor's aware of whatever it is that they may or may not multivitamins or iron and fish oils, if they're supplementing with those things, and their doctor is recommending those to them, I would say nitrates would be pretty low on the list of what I think would need to be addressed within someone's overall training plan. And then certainly once all of those other things are addressed, sleep, you know, time of day when you're exercising, how are you polarizing your training? What days are you recovering? If, if you have all of those other training principles addressed and, and that athlete is showing a, a, a good trend in, in performing and you're predictably seeing improvements, I would say, you know, if, if you can afford nitrate supplementation, I don't see any reason, again, as long as your doctors are made aware of it. I don't see any reason why not to, to supplement with it if you can afford all of the other components, but I wouldn't sacrifice buying a tub of protein for someone and selecting a, a tub of nitrates and then also do some research on, on what type of, what brand of nitrates you're, you're consuming control for how many millimoles of, or how many nitrates are, are going to be within one supplement versus another are going to be highly variable. So do some research on brands that are reputable and have high quality testing standards to ensure that you're actually aware of what it is that you're ingesting. Okay. Now here's the huge question. Do you still use nitrates or did you stop? Because you are a highly trained elite athlete. 
So I think I get a lot of nitrates from my diet. I oh. am obsessed with vegetables. I love raw vegetables. I love cooking. So I'm always in the kitchen and I, I do 99% of the cooking in our household. So I try and always make things balanced. But I, I think from where I'm at, nitrates for me aren't necessarily going to be something that I will incorporate outside of what I'm getting from dietary sources. Typically, what someone would need to eat several dozen beets, raw beets to get the same amount of nitrates as to what we were giving our test subjects in the lab. So several dozen beets. If anyone's ever eaten or took a bite of a raw beet before, I think uh, limitations of our jaw might, might manifest before we are able to adequately acquire or ingest enough nitrates to actually cause any sort of performance benefit. Well, I, I think that is the excellent advice to everybody is just work on a great diet. You get what you need. Yeah. And that is a great pivot to burnout. Speaking of a jaw that's burned out, that's another <laughs> thing that Avery, you've been passionate about and studied. So why don't we jump into that topic, which I think is fascinating for everybody because we can feel that in all aspects of our life. Oh, totally. And I, I think it's something that is becoming more well understood. And I, I think it is evidence. I think the evidence that comes out of these burnout studies is going to help address systemic issues within the idea of the modern work week. I think how we work our workers, how we work them as to what their personality or, or their limitations or experiences align with. I think organizations, as a result of some of this research, are going to have a better idea of ways to maximize their products that they're getting or outcomes from their employees. So burnout, you know, essentially is can be summarized as an accumulation of psychological or physiological fatigue or the inverse, the degradation of physical or physiological endurance. And, you know, certainly endurance is the inverse of fatigue and psychological experiences, you know, being at work, having to meet deadlines, being a parent, going to the grocery store, feeding yourself, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, meditating, talking to your mom, talking to your grandma, paying taxes, all of those things can impact our physiological function. And when someone is exposed to chronic stress, there are a lot of downstream effects that can snowball into kind of this death spiral where it can be tough to get out of without the proper type of intervention for that burnout. Excellent. And boy, we've all felt that. So if I do something hard physically or hard mentally, it impacts the other. So what is that process? Are there hormonal changes? What's going on there? And what can yeah. we do about it? Totally. So some of the symptoms of burnout can be described or, or burnout can be diagnosed from three kind of general components, which is emotional exhaustion, depersonalization of care or, or depersonalization within your personal interactions, or a loss or impairment in your professional accomplishment or your personal worth or job satisfaction. Reductions in those three components are typical of someone who would be diagnosed with something like burnout. And while the diagnosis side of things isn't necessarily what I was studying or the psychological side of things, it was more so the physiological impacts of burnout. And there's a surprising amount of overlap between exercise physiology, things that you would need to address, the recovery needs or stimulus needs of an athlete as there are for someone who's just clocking in, clocking out, you know, doing what they need to do to survive in, in a modern workforce. There are similar responses to those types of stimulus. So yeah, chronic fatigue, memory loss, increase in headaches. There's some uh, evidence that shows ulcers can be a, a byproduct of chronic stress or, or burnout. Impaired hormone, hormonal regulation, cortisol signaling can be impaired, which has an impact on almost every single cellular process in our body. So when you start messing around with, with that stuff, you're going to see those symptoms like fatigue, where sure, you could definitely benefit from going out and being active, but someone who's experiencing those physiological symptoms of burnout, getting out the door for them is, is going to be more challenging, even if something like 
performing mindfulness meditation or yoga, stretching, you know, journaling, gratitude, journaling, you know, those things can have a reduction in sympathetic or your fight or flight, you know, it can have a relaxive effect and exercise, you know, post-exercise can have some of those relaxation benefits as well. So it's kind of, it's a snowball effect for people who fall really deeply into burnout. So you touched on a couple of recovery items. So let's expand on that because it is the real simple takeaway for people. They have to work in recovery. You went through kind of a fun list of a whole bunch of things that happen in life a little bit earlier in the podcast. And those things can be adding up on you when you don't even know it. We don't have to go back there, but okay. In the midst of what we call life, do you have some tips on how to work in recovery? Number one, how to work it in, and number two, what to do besides sleep more, because <laughs> we know that one, but maybe we should talk about that too. So what are your recommendations on recovery, Avery? So sleep is a, a big thing, and, and there is some evidence that impairment in cortisol signaling or cortisol regulation can have some detriments on sleep quality. And then certainly with reduction in sleep, you can see impairments in emotional regulation, cognition, memory, all of those things are kind of downstream effects from impairing sleep. So sleep is a huge thing. My old coach, Craig Manthe, my first ever coach, Craig Manthe, always said sleep is like legal doping. And when you're sleeping, your body is going to all of those areas that may be in need of repair. You're going to see a lot of hormone upregulation while you're sleeping that have regenerative outcomes. Things like just maintaining hydration, you know, your body is made of a lot of water and it relies on a lot of those hydrogen and oxygen molecules that are coming from water to maintain optimal homeostatic regulation within the body. So nutrition is another thing if, if you are kind of minimizing the peaks and valleys in which you're consuming protein, if you're kind of getting a, a steady drip of protein throughout the day, you're going to see much more well-rounded peaks and valleys of something called fractional synthetic rate, which is essentially a measure of protein synthesis or protein uptake. So nutrition is something that someone should absolutely consider in order to kind of like maintain that energy intake to make sure that those systems are working the way they should. Not necessarily, you know, someone who is in manual labor, someone who is in, in landscaping and is moving massive rocks in a hundred degree weather is going to have very different recovery needs than someone who maybe is working in a grocery store, you know, who is restocking shelves or a financial advisor or someone who's on their feet all day may even you know need to tailor their recovery so all that is to say someone who is able to put in a lot more work out of the office so to speak someone who goes and rides for five hours who works a desk job versus someone who goes and rides five hours who works manual labor the person who works a desk job is going to have slightly on average we're generalizing here they're going to have less physiological expectations placed onto their bodies than that of someone who's performing hard landscaping i got it and i hope the listener picked off that everything Avery just went through works. And I loved your examples, right? Because professionals can benefit exactly the same way as athletes. It's just maybe the magnitudes and the amplitude of the waves are different, but it's all the same. So number one thing, listeners, is get caught up on that sleep, the legal doping phenomena. I love that. <laughs> easy to remember. So I really appreciate that. Maybe it's a good pivot into training principles, which you are not only a student of, I'm sure your coaches, Avery, I've taught you, and now you're teaching other people. And if we can talk about those training principles in light of both your student athlete and you were an athlete, and then you were a career professional that was an athlete, now you're transitioning into another career objective. So if we can talk about the principles, but also make the point that they're good for our listeners, whether they're, you know, riding their bike a hundred miles or just doing an evening walk, because they really are. And I love your list. So 
Yeah, no, it's definitely. about training principles. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's so many. You know, for starters, I think something like specificity is a great way to kind of start with some of those basic training principles. And and specificity is the concept of performing a training movement or stimulus that aligns with an adaptation that would improve the performance outcomes of the sport that you're training for. So someone who is a tight end on a football team it's not going to make a lot of sense for them to be spending 25 hours a week on a bike. Whereas, you know, an elite trained endurance athlete isn't going to benefit from throwing pads on and getting laid out on a football field and performing deadlifts and squats, more of those strength and power strength, the hypertrophy type of movement. So specificity is literally just doing the type of work that would benefit what it is that you're trying to perform better at. And then and if I could interject right there, we could take your sentence about specificity and alignment with an adaption and bring it into almost any role in any organization when we're trying to improve performance. So that is already an excellent takeaway. So intentional adaption is where you actually start. And then did I get that right? And then you determine what to do based on that. Yeah. It's, it's more so intentional stimulus and, and certainly, you know, general adaptation syndrome is, is going to be stimulus plus recovery is going to elicit adaptation. And, and certainly we can aim to achieve X, Y, or Z adaptation the best that we can, but that's mostly augmented or controlled through the stimulus first. So the stimulus would be like, okay, I went and did 50 miles on the bike you know, within that stimulus, you can break that down into to sub segments of, of energy output or exertion during that bike ride. So yeah, in essence, the adaptation requires intentional stimulus. Excellent. So keep going. I apologize with the interruption, knocking you oh, off. Oh, no, no worries at all. So then you have periodization, you have overload principles, individualization. Individualization is something where, you know, if we take our landscaping example versus an office worker, how are you going to individualize that person's schedule or occupational demands that you're able to maximize their training without digging them into a hole? So taking some of those off the bike or off the field considerations into how you're going to be structuring that person's training. Overload is a, a concept where you're going to need to progressively, you know, if we're talking about a, a macro cycle or even a meso cycle, you're going to need to progressively increase the amount of stimulus in order to seek continued adaptation. If you do the same stimulus over and over and over again, you're going to plateau. You're going to see a, a reduction in, in that response. So you're going to need to, to incorporate some of those modifiable variables, which can be the number of reps you're doing, the number of sets you're doing, the time of recovery in between sets, the time of recovery in between reps, how many miles you're doing, how much time you're spending at a certain percentage of your VO2 max so on and so forth. So those are going to be some of those modifiable variables. How many days of recovery are you taking? And all of those things can be individualized to meet that athlete where they're at. Overtraining, that's in line with burnout. You're going to see some chronic fatigue, irritability. You're going to see higher elevations of inflammatory markers within the body and systemic circulation. Someone who's overtrained is going to see a reduction in, in heart rate variability. So their resting heart rate is can, can be a little higher. Their max heart rate can be a little lower. You're going to see compromised immune response. So someone might be, you know, be more likely to get sick or to breathe in some kind of pathogen and be less resistant to being able to fight something like that off. So all of those are training principles that over reach, you know, the adaptations that an athlete is going to be looking for. And, and generally there are nine adaptations that are kind of, you know, in the, the full spectrum of an athlete across any sport, there are nine, nine of those adaptations that can be manipulated to, or the stimulus can be manipulated to achieve a certain adaptation. What are those nine quickly? 
Yeah. So you've got skill, you know, a tennis player, someone that has a solid backhand versus a forehand, their ability to cross step on the court to respond to a return. That's a, a skill. So mechanical technique, something that can be refined that over time, as you become more practiced with something, it's going to require less energy to perform that if it's more familiar. Speed is another component. Power, which is just a, a function of, of speed and strength. And then strength, hypertrophy, which is just the growing the muscle size. Hyper, you know, in order to, to achieve hypertrophy or, or cell growth, it, it is generally going to be a different set and rep range from someone who is focusing on something like muscular endurance. You have anaerobic power, VO2 max, and then your longer duration endurance as well. Excellent. And what occurs to me again is in my mind, as you're talking, Avery, I'm referencing the National Aggregate Sand and Stone Association had a recent, they have a weekly podcast on safety and they were talking about the industrial athlete. And what was so cool about it is they talked about training at home in order, so you essentially are competing at work, right? And what's interesting about everything we're talking about today is there's such a tie to the industrial athlete. And to your point earlier, your examples of the landscaper or warehouse worker who is has a very physical or large amount of physical components to the job versus someone who might be behind a desk. Even the desk person, though, has a lot. To, as simple as Apple's watch that says, get up and walk on a routine basis. It just it is really important if you take care of yourself and work on these adaptions with somebody like you, a coach out there, that time at the desk is way more efficient, right? Because whatever ailment, whatever limitation, if you're working on it, in theory, you're going to get an adaption in order to perform somewhere. And the idea of targeted adaptions, I think, is quite good, too. It's interesting that people at desk jobs often have a lot of back pain. And uh, so it's very applicable, I think. Yeah, definitely. And and we also know that sitting for long periods of time, while, while they might benefit, you know, sitting for six or seven hours is going to have a different effect on an elite endurance athlete as to someone who who maybe is more sedentary, sitting is harmful for long periods of time for your posture, for blood flow. You're kind of, when you are sitting on your glutes, you are, you know, kind of forcing blood flow to, to go elsewhere. And yeah, no, it's very easy. I think the posture of leaning over onto a keyboard can absolutely be harmful. So yeah, it's something where if someone has the ability to actually maximize their Apple Watch's recommendations of having the flexibility of going and walking for 10 minutes every now and then or not, you know, that's going to have a big impact on their health. I am an advocate in my workplace of getting people to quit emailing around the corner just get up and walk around and chit chat a little bit. I think it's good for human interaction and they get in that stand time and they move and they feel a little bit better. What I'm interested in is we're talking about these targeted adaptions and it's very difficult. Say I'm a professional, I work out a little bit, I have a desk job and I just want to get general improvements. So where does a coach come in? Should someone seek out your kind of services or any coach? You think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are so many different types of coaches, you know, to optimize any sort of activity. I think specificity can start with the type of coach that has an experience and asking or prescribing certain types of stimulus to achieve an outcome. So yeah, if, if someone was a, a recreational cyclist or even wanted to get into cycling or even wanted to, to talk to me about how to get into cycling and how does that work into, into their professional lives, I have clients who have been doctors, who have been students, who are lawyers, who are construction workers, who are uh, law enforcement, you know, figuring, working with them to put in when it makes sense for them with daylight or weather and giving them flexibility and options to choose when some of those other external variables that they can't control don't align with their schedule. I think all of that plays a role in attempting to optimize someone's function, whether that be at the office or, or on the trails. Excellent. And so I really encourage people to consider that. I mean, coaches cost money and it's got to fit into people's budgets. 
how can we encourage them to do this? Or if they just can't finagle that in their lives, do you have a tip on what they could do instead to help get them type of improvements we're discussing today? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if someone is financially disadvantaged, I think if they have access to internet resources, reputable resources, anything from the American College of Sports Medicine, any of those reputable research journals are going to have some pretty good guidelines. But I think, you know, right now the American College of Sports Medicine for adults recommends 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise a week that translates to two and a half hours and and they also recommend some resistance work two or three times a week and then flexibility a few times a week as well so any of those things you know there's a difference between exercise and physical activity mowing the lawn is an example of physical activity exercise would be more so you know going for a run being intentional about modulating efforts based on the desired outcome of exercising. And another thing I, I always tell my clients, I, I think culturally weight is used as a metric of health. I discourage clients from using a scale. I think it's not telling the full story. There are things that are wonderful things that are happening inside someone's body after performing physical activity or exercise that can't be quantified on, on a scale. And certainly over a period of time, a scale can be used to to track something like weight it's not going to tell the full story of adaptations and there are adaptations that are going to occur way faster than you're going to see a, a serious change in in that range that you're seeing on the scale and another thing is i i think the number on the scale is heavily influenced by your hydration status how much you've eaten, the temperature is, is, you know, how hot it is outside, how much exposure you have outside, that's going to upregulate water retention. It's going to change how much water you're holding on to. So if you're exercising with the intent of losing weight and maybe you're becoming more comfortable with sweating, your body is probably going to be holding on to some more water at the same time. So in those early stages of finding new habits or routines of physical activity, I encourage listeners to not be discouraged or I would even recommend that they put the scale away because there are things that are going to be happening that again can't be quantified by that number on a scale. Yeah I can absolutely vouch for that advice. I'm a heavy sweater and I'm trying to train so I don't cramp and a lot of that just has to do with getting in shape I've discovered. And for instance on a hot day I'll hydrate the best I can without you know, feeling bloated going into whatever long workout I'm going to do. And I can do a three-hour ride outside and be seven or eight pounds less than when I started and take in upward above 150 ounces of water. I mean, I have a hundred ounce pack because I have to, and it's, it's very heavy. And then during the week, my, my hydration will move my weight all over. And the only reason I get on the scale is to actually look at water loss. So I kind of try to regulate that way, but you're right. The fluctuation drives you nuts. And ask me what a way I would have to say about because <laughs> it's totally. all over the place. So that's great advice. You bring up a great point too with water loss. I think that's absolutely important. You know, sweat rates are so variable between populations. You know, I think on the upper end, you know, Alberto Salazar, who's somewhat of a, you know, a controversial Nike symbol, Nike coach, when he was running professionally, he had extremely high sweat rates. I want to say almost two and a half kilograms of water an hour. So a tremendous amount of sweat pouring out of different athletes and then you know, half a liter of water is going to be a little bit more average for folks' sweat rates. Yeah. And people got to move. So can you comment on that or do you have any ideas how it might fit? Yeah, I think most people that are able to move can absolutely benefit from moving more, you know, and a lot of that is going to be based on someone's ability. But I think the office culture is obviously not doing anyone any favors when it comes to the amount of time that folks are maintaining, you know, a sedentary position within an office chair. So I think if someone has the ability, has the flexibility, has the support from their leadership or, you know, occupational leads to that encourage movement within an office space. I think access to infrastructure is obviously
obviously hugely beneficial for office workers who have access to sidewalks or bike paths or green spaces that they're able to take little breaks throughout the day to just move, to just move. I think that's a huge thing. I think meditation and mindfulness, all of those things that have a restorative psychological outcomes, as well as, you know, some physiological outcomes from those practices can benefit someone's work performance as well. Excellent. I think, again, that, that concept of the industrial athlete really sits with me, how we really need to take care of ourselves before we get to work so we can perform at work. But as we just described, if organizations can also, if they're able to fit it in their income statement and come up with the funds, it might not cost a lot of money too. There's just like I said before, don't email around the corner, or down the hall, get up and go talk to somebody. And it can be that simple to encourage that. But the other thing that came to mind for me is the organization has to allow some flexibility to move and to incorporate that into a day and to encourage it. And that's one of the takeaways I've written down is I have to encourage that more. We don't have any, in our organizations, any constraints per se, but I think the, the pressure of the result can act like glue, sticking people to their workstations maybe more than it should. So I need to think about that and pull in some some of the people at my office. I have a real good resource in my brother, call out to my brother, Tom, who's a doctor of chiropractic and nutritionist and has been after us getting on a wellness campaign forever. Maybe it's time. In my mind, I keep thinking I have to be X number of employees so it fits in my income statement, then I can roll forward. But I think there's a lot of potential to help companies that are one or two or three people up to 30, 40, or 50. So the kind of classic small company zone, there's a lot of questions there in how to help those companies roll forward. And, and it seems like you might have the expertise to help companies like that in the future. Yeah, that would be something I would definitely be interested in. I think addressing this idea, you know, the modern work schedule, I think we have instruments to measure responses to different types of stresses nowadays, things that you know, when the 40-hour work week was established, we didn't have a great idea of what some of those responses could be. And I think, you know, different generations are going to be brought up to achieve or, you know, they're going to perform the way that that the previous generation is instructing them to perform. And I think understanding hormonal impairment and regulation, that those downstream effects of burnout, I think it's going to, it calls into consideration on how we structure ways in which we work. And I think it makes sense that from an athletic standpoint, Joe Friel, well-known author and coach says, you should only perform the bare minimum of stimulus that allows you to achieve the maximum adaptation. And I think working people into the ground is going to put them into that risk of a burnout death spiral where they are going to see impaired sleep, impaired you know, intentionality behind their nutritional choices. And certainly there are ranges of access to those resources depending on socioeconomic status. But taking those things into consideration as just a, a well, a full, you know, a, a well-rounded athlete. I, I tell my cycling clients that I, I don't train them to be cyclists, I train them to be all-around athletes. I think tailoring plans or training programs for new employees, not forcing them to drink from a fire hose, you know, can obviously minimize some of those physiological stress responses that we didn't evolve due to these types of stimulus. We evolved to have those stress responses as a survival mechanism. It's a relatively new thing for us to have physiological stress responses to social or cultural constructs, things like jobs or paying taxes or getting the car fixed. And to that end, exercise is also a pretty new, recreational exercise is a pretty new phenomenon. We have the ability to move our bodies in this way, but in past generations, generations, the idea of going and burning unnecessary energy that wasn't going to allow you to gather or hunt or protect or evade predators or, you know, acquire energy. Exercise is a, it's a privilege that people in, in our day and age have access to knowledge that people can optimize what they're getting out of it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Fairly new too, even in the 18th and 19th century. 
people just were surviving and even now. So it, it's still going on. That's an interesting perspective. And I can't believe how fast time goes. We've been at it a while now. And what I'm going to do is ask for your takeaways and I'll go first. So I have a, some time to think of them. But before we do, is there anything that I didn't cover or ask that you'd like to add to the discussion? Yeah, no, I, I think what you're doing with this show is is really important. I think it's cool to see these discussions take place where certain types of you know physiological responses to an athlete or to a, a professional. I think that's cool. So hats off, hats off to Paul for making something like this, starting to put something like this out there. Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. And I must say, Avery, you're really are an impressive professional. Hey, listeners, Avery hasn't accepted a job yet. You better hurry because <laughs> there's quite a talented person out there. And I really appreciate your expertise today and adding. It's so interesting. So my takeaways, number one is I might stop buying my beet supplement, but not till after my race in September. <laughs> Because if I can get that 0.8 or 1% edge, I need everything I can get. But that was really interesting. And to hear such a rigorous analysis was quite good. And really my takeaway from that whole thing is the power of a good diet and good food and what's really in there and how that stimulus would be very interesting for somebody to measure that combined stimulus, which is very hard, right? Because we want to isolate a variable, but I really like what you said. Just eat good, eat raw vegetables, cook real food. I would have loved to watch the people with a greater than 70 VO2 max to your test. That just kind of blows this guy's box off, but that was fun. Another one that I got, and it was reinforced. It's not new for me, but you reinforce the importance of sleep. And it's so important for everybody to really understand that. And that is a nice pivot into this, where you were talking about the, the proper way to train. And I forget the exact word, stimulus and recovery cycle. It's a cycle. And so many people forget the recovery part, or they really are bad at recovery. And I think I have a feeling, Avery, that you're really good at it, recovery because of just how far you went. I mean, UCI, you can't compete at a higher level than that mountain biking, and you have to be good at the whole thing. And I really encourage listeners to take that out. Also, the, the timing of the diet, when you're talking about protein and in the way you can work with a coach, work with a dietitian to understand how that you can get a better approach to your day by just kind of leveling the impact on your body, your mind, and your spirit of being more consistent in the way you eat. And I'm kind of interested in, in figuring that one out. And again, takeaway, I've talked about it a, a couple times in other podcasts, but the whole idea of an industrial athlete in finding a professional like you to improve the program so once employees are at work to start changing some fundamentals. And I, I think my biggest takeaway is it doesn't have to be massive or profound which is really cool. And that was a bit of an epiphany for me today. So your turn. What what takeaways and or advice would you have for the listeners? Yeah, a few takeaways. I think, you know, as far as the recovery component goes, when I take on a new cycling client and, and I get access to their training peaks, I don't even look forward yet with what it is I'm going to do. I, I start out with seeing what their patterns of training are, what their patterns of recovery are. And, and oftentimes I can look at a client's past training and, and realize, I think this athlete could benefit from more recovery. And I, I think incorporating more recovery it allows some athletes, especially working professionals who have additional outside of training stressors that may impair or slow their recovery response to a session on the bike. It's important to put those things into consideration. If someone is plateauing at 15 hours a week, you know, and they're already, they're hitting their recommended polarized training between their different training zones, but they're plateauing, I think, you know, it stands to reason that maybe bumping that person down to 12 hours a week, throwing in an extra recovery day and being a little more intentional with the time that they're spending on the bike can yield better outcomes. 
Another takeaway, I think that was having the ability, you know, having lived the life as, you know, when I was in the Air Force's world-class athlete program, having the ability to train and race full-time, it was very easy for me to naturally go to sleep at night around nine o'clock and, and to naturally get up between 5.30 and 6 in the morning every day without setting an alarm clock and, and just allowing your body to settle into that natural sleep state or those sleep cycles have beneficial training outcomes. And when I'm not having to, you know, those cognitive loads that you've mentioned in some of your other shows, when an athlete isn't having to deal with those things, they're able to see more adaptation or response from their training. So access to that type of thing is is going to be highly variable. And, and sometimes all that is to say, sometimes doing less can be more for working professionals. And last takeaway, I think as far as the nitrates debate goes, I think, you know, a lot of those studies that are examining the responsiveness or efficacy of the ergogenic properties of dietary nitrate supplementation, the, the studies are taking place over the course of uh, four to six weeks per test subject. There's a lot of evidence that shows that four to six weeks is a time frame that can show tremendous variation in someone's fitness. So just because we don't necessarily show that beetroot juice showed an improvement in time trial performance, it doesn't mean that there wasn't anything there. It's just that the beetroot juice effect wasn't loud enough to suss out or to drown out the noise of variability in fitness over the course of that time period. So there can certainly be things that are happening that might not be translating into the, the instruments that we are using to assess outcomes. So it's, it's not necessarily it works or it doesn't work. In some cases, it can just be we didn't measure the thing or we didn't have instrumentation sensitive enough to measure a physiological outcome that we can absolutely credit to someone ingesting a bunch of nitrates. Excellent. Um, I appreciate that. So maybe I'll keep supplementing because... Yeah, uh, you might as well. Yeah, as long yeah. as you don't have any GI distress or headaches from it and your doctor's cool with it, I, I think it doesn't hurt. Yeah, excellent. I would add to my takeaway too that listening to you speak, Avery, it's deliberate practice is kind of part of the human condition. If you want to get improvement, you have to have intention with what you're going to do and target in a very hopefully logical and applicable way what you want to improve. And also we can't get everything done at once. We have to target things, get some progress, recover, target something else. And that concept alone is, I think, really valuable for organizations and professionals. Because if you go back and listen to this podcast and listen to Avery speak, if you just insert organization where you're talking uh, about competing on bikes or such, or as an athlete, insert professional, it's so applicable. It just kind of fits right in because we're human beings in both pursuits and the human condition needs this kind of impact. So with that, I want to thank you again for your service. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to get to know you, Avery, and I wish you the very best and appreciate you being here. Thank you. Oh yeah, of course, Paul. Yeah. And I, I think I, I actually did think of one more takeaway that sure. real quick, if, if that's okay with you. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think similar to a team sport, if one player takes soccer, for example, is, is coming into, into the season in a detrained state, someone who is not as experienced or a new worker is coming onto a team, someone who's in a detrained state is more likely to reach their capacity quicker than someone who comes into that with experience. So keeping pace with peers is likely to overextend someone quicker if, if they're in a relatively detrained state, which runs the risk of something like burnout or injury, you know, surpassing the limitations or capacities for your cartilage to withstand changes in direction in your knee, you know, things like that should be taken into consideration as well, where someone is showing up for the season in terms of what type of stimulus you're going to throw at that athlete or worker. I really like that. So a warehouse team has a pace and a new team member. That makes such good sense. That's an excellent takeaway for everybody to try to figure out what that is, try to figure out what that performance gap is, and then deliberately train it. So excellent. Thanks for adding that. And again, yeah, I want to thank you. 
Yeah, great to have you with us. I appreciate everybody tuning in to another episode of the Fifth Professional One podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share so we can continue to have pros like Avery to get their message out and help us perform and live our best lives. Thank you for tuning in. It's time to get to work.